Well, good morning, Christ City. Wherever you are, would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Our text comes from Matthew 7, 21 to 23. And Jesus says this, Let everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Remaining standing, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have sobering words from your Son before us today. Words that challenge us, both in our actions and motives. And so would you, by your Spirit, soften our hearts to hear and obey your word this morning that we might be among those to whom you say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Amen. Well, we are a generation of people who value, don't we, authenticity, who value being authentic. In fact, no other generation before us has put such a high value on you being you, on you being your truest self. And that's why the greatest insult you can give someone today is to suggest that they might be fake, to suggest that they might be a, a phony. And, and for all the good that uh, emphasizing authenticity has done in our day, because I think it has done some good, nobody likes BS. It is precisely due to this cultural value of authenticity that many of us will miss what Jesus is saying in our text today. We'll miss the most important thing Jesus wants to tell us this morning. Let me explain. The brand of authenticity we most prefer, the type, if you will, is called expressive individualism. And it's a way of thinking that sounds something like this. Whatever else is true of me, if I, if I am honest with myself and with others, I am real. I know myself. The problem with expressive individualism is that both the scriptures and, and modern psychology teach us that we are a people with a tremendous capacity for self-deception, a, a tremendous capacity to, to fool ourselves. And, as is the case with Matthew 7, 21 to 23, through forceful and binary language, Jesus outlines for us the eternal big-picture consequences of being self-deceived when it comes to your relationship with him. Our text today, on the heels of the narrow road and the false prophets, serve to remind us of our need for right individual response to Jesus. Now, as one commentator said, it is not only false teachers who make the narrow way difficult to find and still harder to tread, but now looking at this week, a man may also be grievously self-deceived. And so here's how I want to set up our text for today. Remembering that just a few verses prior, Jesus had reminded us of the loving and giving and generous nature of our Heavenly Father, I want us to see today, it might sound strange to you, but I want us to see today our text as a gracious gift, a gracious and loving gift. How? Well, is it not a gracious and loving gift when you point out to your friend or to your spouse that they're blind spots, 
the things about themselves that are destroying them that they can't see? And is it not a gracious and loving gift when my wife tells me, hey, Jake, don't wear that shirt for the sermon this week? Well, in the same way, in the same way, Jesus, gracious and merciful like his Father, is going to peel back our layers of self-deception for the purpose, for the loving purpose of, of us truly knowing him, of us truly enjoying him. And here's how Jesus is going to do that. First, Jesus is going to show us what the road to self-deception, what the road of tricking ourselves could look like. Second, he'll, he'll show us the doing that comes from being known, the obedience that comes from relationship. And then thirdly and finally, Jesus will, will pull back the layer, if you will, or, or go higher, if you will, and show us his great glorious authority. So first, what, what does the road to self-deception look like? I think, and, and you know this by now, hopefully you, you know this by now, generally speaking, we, we've seen this road painted for us throughout the series. It's a road marked by external righteousness, external doing, uh, external profession. But, but there is no inward transformation. There is no internal righteousness. There is no greater righteousness that Jesus has spent all this time talking about. This whole person devotion to him. Where I don't murder masks a deep anger. And, well, I haven't cheated on my wife, really masks this insatiable lust that we've made peace with. But despite Jesus' repeated insistence, repeated insistence on the need for whole person righteousness, we've secretly held out hope, haven't we? That being a good person and doing good things and saying the right things, we've secretly held out hope that that's enough to enter his kingdom. That that's enough to be with Jesus forever. And what our text today does in, in no uncertain terms, it is put to death that idea once and for all. Just in case we had formed a different, more lenient, more tolerant picture of the wide and easy road, Jesus, without being prompted, fills us in on the details of what this wide and easy road could look like. And if we're being very honest, it's a road that at first blush that on first read scares us and scares me. Consider the person that Jesus is describing in verse 21 to 22. Again, we saw these verses last week, but let's look at them again. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Last week I showed us this connection between our text today and this false prophet text of the week before. But I don't think Jesus has only false prophets in mind today. Let's imagine if this person showed up in our midst. We're gathered together again and this person shows up working miracles, speaking prophetic words, Casting out demons. Now these might seem strange to us, you know, speaking prophetic words and casting out demons and working miracles. Th this might seem strange to our modern ears, but, but a number of commentators will tell you that these, these were all basic components of discipleship in the early church. In, in essence, Jesus is saying, this person is doing outwardly all the things Christians do. 
All the things followers of Jesus do. All things that I myself, Jesus says, have done and will do. Notice also that Jesus does not deny the validity of these words. Maybe they are speaking right prophetic words, working right miracles, casting out demons. Maybe they're truly doing all those things. John Stott, he summarizes the situation like this. What better Christian profession could be given? Here are people who call Jesus Lord with courtesy, orthodoxy, they believe the right things, and enthusiasm in private devotion and in public ministry. And yet they are deceived. They are deceived. Why? Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is this deception? This is so important we get this right. For all their talking, for all their outward enthusiasm, these people, these many, notice that many again, these many did not obey, did not live out this greater righteousness that Jesus has spent the entire Sermon on the Mount unpacking. Many of us either grew up or became a Christian in a culture of easy believism, of easy believism, or what some theologians call cheap grace. And it's this idea that if I accept Jesus into my heart, I go to church, tell other people about Jesus, how I live, what I do, is not really that important. My desires are really a peripheral issue which Jesus is not altogether concerned with. What matters, we say, is accepting Jesus into our heart, this easy believism. And the result the fruit of easy believism, of cheap grace, is nominal Christianity full of nominal Christians. People who profess to be followers of Jesus outwardly, but inwardly remain untransformed, unchanged. It's Christians who have relegated obedience and doing to some sort of optional add-on. Relegated transformation to the purview of some spiritual specialists. To the extent, think about this, that our litmus test for true discipleship, what, what is it? They give, they, they come to church on Sunday, maybe go to community group on Wednesday. Our litmus test for true discipleship is substantially lower than the one that Jesus rejects in our text today. This problem is insightfully summarized by D.A. Carson, he says this, where nominal Christianity is compounded or covered up by spectacular profession, it is especially likely to manufacture its own false assurance. In other words, we are complicit in our own self-deception when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. We actively deceive ourselves chiefly, preeminently, primarily by ignoring the entire message of the Sermon on the Mount that those who will be permitted entry into Jesus' kingdom will be those who are both believing and doing disciples. The first step to moving out of self-deception is waking up, is waking up. It's reading texts like ours today. 
intentionally jarring text. It's reading texts like James 2. James, where, where he says, faith without works is dead. It's reading texts like we will later, like Matthew 25, where Jesus separates the sheep and, and the goats, where Jesus judges us by our works. And if this sounds maybe theologically suspicious to you, let me take you to point number two. The doing that comes from being known or the obedience that comes from relationship. At the end of our text today, Jesus, Jesus, he condemns those with the mere outward appearance of righteousness by saying this. Matthew 7, 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's what I expect Jesus to say. And then will I declare to them, you did not obey me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But instead, Jesus says, ultimately, at foundation, I never knew you. I never knew you. Jesus does it again. He's so insightful. Here's what he's saying. Doing the will of our Father in heaven and doing these acts of greater righteousness, all of this begins... All of this begins, and so important we see this, all of this begins from a place of gracious relationship, from a place of receiving Jesus' unmerited favor and grace towards us in his life, death, and resurrection. It all begins there. Throughout the history of the church, there have been many who struggled to understand the relationship between faith and works. Indeed, there have been big fights over faith and works and how those two relate. And, and the best way I think the Bible gives us to understand this relationship between faith and works is through understanding the doctrine or the teaching of our union with Christ. Permit me to be a little bit theological for a second. The, the Bible teaches that you and I have been joined by the Holy Spirit to Jesus. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And let me very quickly just parse those two things out. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. When you mess up, when you don't live out the greater righteousness of this past series, when the Sermon on the Mount seems so far from what you actually do, when you mess up, you can go to our Father for forgiveness because Jesus, Jesus who died for you and rose again, he has brought you up with him. You are in Christ. You can be forgiven because Jesus' righteousness, his goodness, his obedience, what he did well and right and perfect has been credited, accounted towards you. His blood covers you. His robes cover your nakedness. You are in Christ. See, only those who believe can obey. But also, Christ, this is amazing, is in you. Friends, we are not left to our own devices with our own resources. One theologian describes this reality like this. When it feels as though you are drowning in a sea of trouble, put your hand up if you felt like that lately. You don't have to medicate your feelings or reach for solutions that might temporarily relieve but ultimately destroy you. You can choose instead. You can choose instead 
because Christ is in you, you can choose instead to draw on Christ's strength and you will find that you are strengthened. You can take one step, even in the dark. You can make one new choice. You can hold on for one more minute. Only those who obey can believe. To know Jesus is to obey Jesus. So here's a foundational question for us this morning. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? I said this early on when this whole pandemic was beginning, but I think this this season is exposing is that for those of us who went to church before, we gathered together, went to community group, we soon discovered as we got pushed into isolation against our will, pushed into isolation by ourselves, that our relationship largely depended on other people, largely depended on other people's faith. Other people's walk with Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with community. Indeed, we were made for community, but some of us have discovered that we don't actually know Jesus. When we're not being asked to go somewhere or asked to do certain things, we've discovered that when we're by ourselves in our secret, quiet place, we don't actually know Jesus. See, to know Jesus is to love Jesus. Perfectly, no. No, no, no. But to know Jesus is to love Jesus. It's to love Jesus in word and in deed. Here's my pastoral plea. I get about two or three of these a year. I'm going to use one right now. I don't want there to be a single person listening today who on the last day, on the day of Jesus' return, gets to the gates of the kingdom of heaven, and here's verse 23, depart from me, I never knew you, pronounced over them. That is the thing that drives me to my knees each morning. That is the thing that drives your, your community group leaders to their knees each morning. I do not want verse 23 pronounced over you. And so graciously, Jesus speaks forcefully to us to snap us out of our self-deception. Do you know Jesus? Again, do you know Jesus? And if you do, do you love him in word and in deed? Because knowing Jesus makes all the difference. What Jesus says about himself, and this is point number three, his authority, What Jesus says about himself in our text today, if we really think about it, is jaw-dropping. Jaw-dropping. If there has been any question just who exactly this preacher is, who calls himself the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, who has the the strength or, or the bravado to call God his father, Jesus now, if there's been any questions, rips the masks off. At the end of our sermon, we'll see this again. We have now in Matthew's gospel this exalted view of Jesus, this glorious view of who Jesus is. Jesus, our preacher, our wise sage, has been given the authority to declare enter or depart, in or out, with me or not with me. You know me or you don't know me. He and he alone is the arbiter of who will enter his kingdom, of who will enter eternity. 
And considered in the entire context of the Gospel of Matthew, our text today stands only with Matthew 25, and again, we'll look at that at the end, only with Matthew 25 in painting this glorious, grandiose picture of Jesus. Jesus, the eschatological or last day judge. Jesus, the sole provider of our salvation. Jesus, the judge who saves us. That's who's preaching to us in our text today. That's who we've been listening to. We sense in our passage today a glimpse of God's glory and might, clothed, as Matthew eleven twenty nine will tell us, in the gentle and lowly Jesus. And it's too much for us. If we had been tempted to, you know, debate the merit of Jesus' teachings before, or, or discuss it further, if you will, what Matthew tells us in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, what Jesus tells us is that there is no more debating. There is no more discussion. This is who Jesus is in all his glory and might and power. We have been rightly put in our place. So here's how I want us to end. I want us to end by reading Matthew 25, 31 to 46 in its entirety. There is a danger sometimes in reading the Sermon on the Mount and just thinking that Jesus is a wise teacher, one guru among the gurus. But I think what we have in our text today, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, is actually a condensed version of this glorious picture we get of Jesus in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Friends, we cannot forget who Jesus is. And in Matthew 25, we see so clearly, we see so gloriously just who Jesus is. I want you to, if you can, think about where we've been in this series so far. All that Jesus has said, all that he has commanded us. And I want us to see that Jesus has been intentionally driving to this point. Driving to these verses in the sermon. Driving to the authority on which this sermon ends. I want to do that by showing us Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Jesus, the Son of Man, is not some lower level employee warning us that his dad is coming. You better smarten up. No. Jesus, the Son of Man, he and he alone will come in glory, and he and he alone will judge between the sheep and the goats, between the obedient and the disobedient. The sheep will be shown in their obedience, and the goats in their disobedience. And so let me invite you to stand again. Because as we encounter the Jesus of Matthew 25, 31 to 46, we encounter a glorious picture of who Jesus is. So I invite you to stand right now and align your body with your heart the truth of Scripture with your physical action. Read with me this glorious passage we find in Matthew 25, and then we'll pray. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me.
And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, all we can do in hearing these words is fall down on our knees and cry out, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, sinners. Jesus, we are so thankful that we are overwhelmed that you did have mercy on us. That through your life, death, and resurrection, you have joined us to you. That we are in you and you are in us. And now, transformed from the inside out, law written on our hearts, we can do these things. We can be obedient. Father, I pray for the brother or sister this morning who does not know you, the person listening who does not know you. I pray, Father, that they would, by your Spirit, perceive this and that they would not turn to shame or to some sort of a self-flagellation, but they would turn instead, Jesus, to your flagellation, to your work on the cross, that they would wholeheartedly trust in you. And so I pray for the person right now who does not know you, who in this moment wants to trust you and believe in you and depend on you, throw their whole life upon you. I pray in this moment, Lord, they would trust you and believe in you. They would cry out, Lord, Lord, with their mouth, but their hearts would be close to you. Their hearts would be obedient to you. I pray that for all of us, Lord that this church would be a church of whole person discipleship, of whole person devotion. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and in the name of Jesus alone. Amen.